I just told my partner, um, it'll probably be an hour and a half. He's from Liverpool. <laughs> yeah, I'll try, I'll try and curtail my, uh, my urges to just go on and on and on endlessly. <laughs> because no, no one really knows anything about Liverpool. The, the great thing about people from Liverpool, they're really understated. They never oversell themselves. I've been. It's a wonderful city. It's Give it 20 years, I think it'll be the best city in that it will have turned all the buildings into things. What is it looking like at the moment? Um, Liverpool's been through a, a huge transformation sort of since 2008, really. So they got capital culture in 2008 and there was quite a lot of investment in the, in the city centre, not so much in the suburbs and the outer regions of the city, but huge investments in the city centre. So the city centre is wonderful. It really is a world city. Uh, you go to, when I was a kid growing up in Liverpool, there was very little in the city centre but you go there now and on a sunny day you could be anywhere in you know the Mediterranean you hear foreign accents Spanish accents Italian accents American accents walking around the Albert Dock walking around the Pierhead got these magnificent buildings wonderful architecture the River Mersey you know it's a truly wonderful place Um, outside of the city centre there's quite a lot of you know still quite a lot of dereliction and unfortunately poverty an area around Anfield, which is undergoing something of a transformation too. Visitors to Anfield would see a completely different city than the one they would see in the centre. Yeah. I was talking with David Prentice a couple of weeks ago, whom you may know, despite him being a blue. Um, oh, he's, a great, he's a great guy, David Prentice. Correct he's answer. favourite blue. Excellent. Um, yes, he was saying, I was down in London. There is a notable difference between London and Liverpool. I don't know if you've been to the Dixie Dean Hotel. Yes. Good. Uh and there will be more of that when I talk to David uh, in October because I'm leaving three um, conversations for Scouse Week because I always try and tie it around Watford's games. So Watford go to, I think, Liverpool or Everton at the end of October. But I wanted to get you in and Jeff Goulding because you are... Would you disagree that you are the Wayne Barton of Liverpool Football Club history? To my shame, I don't know Wayne Barton, so I can't answer that properly. Well, if I say Wayne has, Wayne. Wayne has written 18 books about Manchester United, he was in charge of the True Genius George Best project recently, right, and he's okay. collaborated with okay. the De Silva twins on their memoir. But I can't think of any, maybe Simon Hughes, uh, who writes for The Athletic, uh, who has written books about Liverpool, but you're six. Let me just run through for the benefit of the listeners. Um, and they are all very recent as well. You've got the Red Odyssey trilogy, which had Red Odyssey, We Conquered All of Europe, and Champions Under Lockdown. Uh, the untold story of uh, Liverpool's recent victories. Um, and significantly, Stanley Park's story, Life, Love and the Merseyside Derby. And you also worked with George Scott on his Lost Shankly Boy book. And I spoke to George, and it, he's in the prose of prose section of the football library. Did you meet up with him very recently? Yeah, George and I met. Uh, we, we met for the first time in the Shankly Hotel well over a year ago now. I can't even remember. It must be 18 months ago. Uh, and we met again. Uh, George has had a bit of a tough time in the last year. I don't, I'm sure he will have yes, told he, you. Yes, yeah, he did, because he, he uh, wasn't coughing. He said to me, sorry if I cough, but he was absolutely fine during the chat. Yeah, he's made a remarkable recovery, uh, and I was absolutely delighted to catch up with him. Uh, in the same place where we had our first meeting and we, we decided to work together on the Lost Shankly Boy. Um, yeah, so we met up in, in the Shankly Hotel again uh, and he was in fine health. 
It was just, it's an unbelievable story about being effectively the 14th Shankly boy. He didn't quite get there in the first team, but he has stories to tell. And uh, when, it, when you were, because apparently you wanted to write an article about him and you said, no, 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 this is a book. So thank you for doing that. And uh, George has his book, The Lost Shankly Boy. We're now 60 years on and from that era, which you didn't live through. So when did you enter the story of Liverpool Football Club? Well, I was born in 1967, so I missed out on, on all, all of the early years uh, of the Shankly Revolution. Uh, first really became aware of football, properly aware of football, around the 1974 FA Cup final against Newcastle. I remember watching that home with my mum and dad and my aunts and uncles and my cousins and the living room was absolutely packed and this game was on the television and, and really it was sort of looking at the reactions of the people around me and, and, and their behaviour was being affected by this, this game that was going on on the television and the joy in their faces and I, I was transfixed and I was, you know, that was it. I was hooked from that moment on really and I, I always say and I have said before that I think part of the joy of, of seeing Liverpool win things for me even now is, is as much about seeing the joy in people's faces and experiencing that joy for myself uh, it takes me back to those early moments of watching Liverpool win games and watch Liverpool win trophies. Uh, and you just want to feel that over and over and over again. It's like a drug you're addicted to it and you're chasing that high all the time. And uh, I'm fortunate enough to support Liverpool, so I've been able to get, get my fix many, many times over. Yes. Uh, of course, that makes the barren years um, really difficult to bear, but fortunately we haven't had too many of those. The 30-year wait for a league title was punctuated by trophy success, including you know major trophies like the European Cup. So, yeah, so I've been I've been supporting Liverpool, consciously supporting Liverpool since '74. My my dad will say I, I was a Liverpool fan from the day I was born. Very but I good. was conscious of it in '74 and going the match in '75. Wicked! I support a club whose glory days. Um, are filled with, uh, well, it's the Graham Taylor era. But since then, we've beaten Liverpool, the Tommy Mooney goal in 99. We had uh, the game where Mar Troy Deeney said Martin Skirtle wasn't up for it, which was, I think, something like Jurgen Klopp's second game at yeah. the Vic. Um, and it was a, a tremendous day. And, of course, last season, uh, not last season, uh, the season before that, um, when Liverpool's um, otherwise invincible season was ruined by... Watford's brilliance at the Vic. But I wanted you to name, if you are a true fan of Liverpool, the 74 team, Keegan scored twice, Steve Highway scored once. Name the other nine players. Uh, oh, um, Clements in goal, Bill Thompson, Emlyn Hughes, Alec Lindsay, um, Callaghan, yep. uh, Tommy Smith. Couple of Scots and a Welshman. You've put me on the spot here. I know it was a long um, time ago. You need two um, Scots. And if you were to pair Kevin Keegan with someone, it would be... Toshak. Toshak. And then the two midfielders are Peter... Cormac. And Brian... Brian Hall. Brian Hall. Thank and you for the help. The 12th man it's was... early in the morning is my defence. <laughs> yes, yes, it's 11 o'clock in the morning. We're talking on uh, August the 17th. Uh, so Liverpool have played one and won one. Uh, 37 games to go. And that was at Norwich. So we're preparing for the return of fans to Anfield. Are you, will you be there this weekend? Yes, I'll be there this weekend. Who is it? What's the really game? Really looking forward to it. Oh. Barely at home this weekend. Full house. Uh, we've had some ticketing issues because the club has moved over to electronic 
tickets. It's incredible to see, both with Everton and Liverpool, I brought this up with David Prentice, it is true that the crowd are a 12th man. Because last season, you've, you had a controlled experiment. What do you do if you remove fans from the Liverpool and Everton grounds? You lose games. Everton quite spectacularly. Liverpool, I don't know if they were just whipped like horses. But um, this will be amazing. And as you said, it's all about the fans. And you have a ticket at the Spy on Cop. I've never seen a competitive game there, but I have sat in the Cop. Sang You'll Never Walk Alone at the Hillsborough Games. And it's a mighty stand. But what is it like seeing the Kenny Dalgleish stand there? And you're in the Cop and you know you're in the second, not the second best stand, but the second best seats in the house. Or do you term the Cop as the best seat in the house? Yeah, I would have to say for me, the cop is the is the best seat in the house. If you've got a seat in the cop, uh, that's the best seat in the house. My seat is just under the scoreboard. Um, so as you're facing the pitch, it's on the right-hand side, just under the scoreboard. So kind of where the cop moves into the Sir Kenny Dalgleish stand, but it is still technically the cop. It's cop 10 style, cop season ticket. I mean, it's different now. Uh, I stood on the cop in the late 70s and early 80s, and that was some incredible experience. Anarchic, chaotic witty, cruel, and absolutely fantastic training uh, to be a, to be a supporter. The thing I loved about the cop in the early days was it, its creativity, really. Uh, it was always uh, trying to be original and not just copy, you know, other people's chants or, you know, even today, you know, copites of a certain generation will pour scorn on chants of who are you and things like that. You know, they always tried to be original try to be creative with their banners and their songs and, and, and it was just a great great place to watch football it's still a great place to watch football and on European nights and big games against the big clubs it's it, you know it, it rises to the occasion but it has it has lost a little something for me after all seater after the stadiums became mm. all seater and I obviously understand the reason for that and I'm completely supportive of that but there is no doubt that the standing cop was was the you know the, the greatest stand uh, in, in world football, in would, my opinion. And obviously, I, well, no, I would say that. I, I don't really like crowds, but the <clears throat> to be in the atmosphere of the cop when it was literally swaying from side to side because of the people, um, the the packed nature of the crowds. Obviously, not anymore, and the the piss coming down the stands. Um, it was a different time, but I suppose. Nowadays, there is a lot of talk about how football fans... You're the average age, so people in their 50s. That's the average top-tier crowd. Are there youngsters coming through who do go to Anfield every week and sit-slash-stand at the cop? You see, this is a real problem. You're kind of alluding to something that is a bit of a time bomb for football, really. There are youngsters coming through who support Liverpool, want to support Liverpool, want to go the game, but simply can't get a ticket, can't get in. They're either priced out or there or just isn't the availability. Um, you know, the supply and demand issue, the stadium isn't big enough to cater for all the people who want to go to the game. And it was it was noticeable, really, when Liverpool went to Madrid for the European Cup final against Tottenham, that there were tens of thousands of, of youngsters there, many of whom wouldn't have been actually getting in the game, but they would have been in the, in the squares and the streets and outside the bars of Madrid, soaking up the atmosphere, learning the songs... Uh, I'm feeling like they're part of it, even though they're not in the game and have not got a ticket for the game. My son's a case in point. You know, I, you know, try to. I am in the auto cup scheme. I try to get him into as many games as as I can, and he tends to go to the cup games if I, you know, 
and, and I go to the league games. Uh, but he hasn't got a season ticket. He, he's on the list, but he'll wait a very, very long time. He might even be my age by the time mm. he gets a season ticket. So this is the problem, I think. It's not that there isn't the appetite for football amongst the young. It's it's that they're just not getting tickets for the games. There needs they to be a ring fence. Or they can't get in. There must be a ring fence. X amount of tickets for under-18s. That would really win back some of the goodwill that was lost by John Henry. I'm not going to go over it because we have too, too much to talk about, including your new book, The Untouchables, which you've written with Kieran Smith, and Anfield's Band of Brothers, which is released September 20th, which is try and square for me the fact that Liverpool, which is famously redder than red, are moving from community to commodity. And is that going to be your next book? Well, it's certainly there's certainly uh, a bouquet in that. Really, I don't think that's a it's a Liverpool phenomena. I think it's a Premier League phenomena. I think it's a it's a it's a UEFA phenomena. It's a world football problem. Um, football clubs were founded on communities. Liverpool uh, was born out of well, it was originally Everton Football Club, which was originally Saint Domingo FC. So football clubs on Merseyside were formed by churches. Uh, to give the working classes uh, something to do, sport to play in the winter. Even then, football clubs were were very quickly, you know, became the concern of business people, businessmen. But that process has accelerated uh, massively in the last, you know, 30 years. And all football clubs are experiencing this now, um, where companies, individual, wealthy individuals, um, see an opportunity uh, to monetize a brand um, and to make money from football. Uh, football probably needed it at the end of the 80s, um, particularly after the Taylor report. Football clubs needed to, you know, convert their stadia to all seater stadiums. So there was going to be there was a clear need for an injection of cash. But it feels to me like the balance of power between the lifeblood of the sport, the people who go to the game, the people who buy the merchandise, the people who worship the players on the one hand and the boardroom on the other hand the balance of power has, has shifted too far in favour of capital in favour of the money men um, now at Liverpool we're, we're seeing an attempt to redress that um, by Spirit of Shankly uh, and their affiliates who have in the process of negotiating uh, influence at board level uh, and that's to be commended and I think if, if we're to reclaim the game in any way shape or form we have to have, if we, if we can't have supporter ownership of football clubs, and that's probably a pipe dream given the sums of money involved, then we have to try and fight for supporter representation at board level. And so I hope, in answer to your question, I hope no, we're not moving from community to commodity. I hope what we're doing is we're trying to redress that balance now, uh, and at least it seems the club is listening. I mean, it's a shame it's took several high-profile errors to get them to listen. But they do seem to be listening now, and that, that's to be commended. And hopefully those negotiations conclude successfully and swiftly. And, if you, and we can get supporters represented at the board level. I, I hear, hear to that. And if you do want to learn about these missteps, if, you, if your head has been in a rock for the last 10 years, this is Anfield, it's the place to go. One of about 609 Liverpool comment sites. There's red all over. Liverpool, uh, LFC TV, Redmen TV. There's the Anfield rap, which seems to have a lot of access to the club. Uh, is This is Anfield is completely on the outside of the fence, isn't it? I think, yes, compared to some sites. Uh, so Redman TV and the Anfield Rap, you know, enjoy enjoy access uh, to the club. I think this is Anfield's 
been around for a long time now. Uh, this Anfield's been around for 20 years. Uh, so it's a kind of serious player um, on the sort of supporter-based media front. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not the editor of This Is Anfield. I don't run This Is Anfield. I, I write for them. I'm proud to write for them. But what I, what I see is, is them growing year on year and attempting to improve their influence, at, uh, attempting to improve their access to the club. They're now starting to have conversations about that. And I think as, as we move into the near future, we'll start to see more and more you know, more and more access to the club for This Is Anfield and more and more interviews with key players, the manager. They have had uh, some big, big exclusives. Um, they, you know, they did an interview with Peter Moore before he left. They're there in, in the press zone uh, during games and, you know, they've been in the training grounds, the tra- training um, trips away uh, and have had access to the players um, during those. But I think that's only going to grow and grow because the, the site is really going from strength to strength. It looks great. Um, I haven't read it yet, but you have a four-part chat with Watford's greatest ever player, who has got a book out himself. We're in the football library. Uh, John Barnes's memoir is there. He wrote it with Henry Winter about 20 years ago. So when you read Henry Winter yeah. about football, it's based on what John Barnes and the like have told him. Um, but this four-part chat starts with Watford and then moves on. So isn't it amazing how Barnes was at Watford for 10 years? And nowadays, Harry Kane's been at Spurs for 10 years, and now it's a cause celebre. His brother seems to be getting it in the neck by the time this goes out. Maybe he has left Tottenham. Um, but the, the nature of the passage of time, in that if you're thinking about players who have been loyal to their club in the last 20 years, mostly it's Liverpudlians, apart from Giggs and Gary Neville. But Liverpool's got loads, one club men. Yeah, I did, I did touch on that when, when, I, when I had a chat to John. It is remarkable how many ex-Liverpool players remain in the area. John still lives on the world, just over the Mersey. And, and, you know, many of them do. And, you know, his his sort of view on that was he very, very quickly identified with the culture of the city and the people. And he, he liked the fact that they didn't stand on ceremony, that, you know, if you'd had a bad game, he'd let you know you had a bad game. Um, they didn't like people being, you know, getting above themselves. And he kind of identified with the humour and, and the wit, and I just I found it all. I found the whole conversation with John remarkable for many reasons. Really, one, it was a little bit of an insight into the evolution of football around the time when he joined Liverpool, because he, he talked about at Wofford training was very meticulous. He talked about uh, how uh, Taylor had, w- would tell you what to do every minute of the game. You know, the whole game plan was mapped out for you, and you had a real script to follow. Uh, the training felt very scientific, and then he comes to Anfield and he played five aside. Uh, and if you asked the Ronnie Morans and the Joe Fagans what they wanted you to do during the game, you were told we've just paid a fortune for you, and you want us to tell you how to play football. <laughs> and you know, he found it quite primitive when he when he first joined Liverpool. But then he very quickly realised that well, he, 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 his argument was that it was actually a method to all of that, and it was all the secret to Liverpool's success. He felt was was in their recruitment. So they would recruit players who could work with, who were intelligent and who could work within that framework so who could find solutions for themselves because the game moved quickly and you didn't want players looking to the bench for advice. You wanted them to figure it out and work for themselves. And if they couldn't do that, they were found out very quickly and moved on from the club. I just thought, thought that was a really interesting insight into, into Liverpool in that period. But also football, you know, it was obviously beginning to change. 
um, around that time and just found him an incredibly intelligent guy um, and his thoughts on race and racism. The, the fact that you know he experienced racist abuse from Liverpool fans when he played for Watford but then when he was playing for Liverpool, you know, all of that seemed to go away. And his argument, that his point on that really was that, you know, all, all he did was make it difficult for, for racists to voice their opinions publicly at Anfield. Uh, it didn't make the racists go away. So he just had some incredible insights about a whole range of subjects. It was initially going to be a, you know, just a one, a one, uh, a single interview, one piece, but we spoke for so long and he was so illuminating on so many subjects, it ended up being a four-part four part interview. Indeed. Um, Henry Winter's collaboration with John Barnes is, is spectacular. There's also, was it Dave Hill's book, Out of His Skin? I think yeah. it was brilliant. Yeah. And yes, there has not been a definitive book about racism and football. Emmy Anora tried to chronicle it all, and in the end, I describe it as like a sigh. He said, oh, well, no one's going to learn. But uh, coming in October, The Uncomfortable Truth About Racism by John Barnes. I hope to get John in. I know he's, he's, he does a lot of work interviewing, and his line is, no, 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 it's not a football problem, it's a society problem. One of the things yes, Watford absolutely. is not known as is a racist club. I mean, our entire front line this season uh, is non-white. Um, and the, the game plan, as you mentioned in the 80s, was give it Barnsley. And it all worked. And then he went to Liverpool and was one of a few players, a few black players at Liverpool. Howard Gale was there. Uh, Ronnie Rosenthal was Israeli. Uh, and now you've got... Yeah, no, the it was John King. and Howard, basically. Yeah, it was John and Howard. And Howard was a reserve player who didn't make... Uh, he did, did play uh, a number of first-team games, but didn't make the breakthrough in the way that John did. Um, and I think John might have been the first, he's certainly the first high-profile black player on, in Merseyside football. Yeah. As Everton didn't have any black players at that time, and he was the only black player in our team. And so, yeah, that you know, it was an incredible time, really. He received, you know, racist abuse from Liverpool fans before he joined Liverpool, and he received racist abuse from Everton fans in the Merseyside derby. So, Liverpool, as much as it's a cosmopolitan city, and today, you know, views itself as a world city with a global outlook and a welcoming city. You know, like all cities around the country, it's it's had its issues with race and racism. Well, they've got um, a slavery museum um, there. Absolutely, absolutely. It's got, you know, um, one of the oldest Chinese communities in the world. Um, one of the first mosques to be built in the UK was built in Liverpool. It's got the Irish uh, tradition as well. So, you know, Roman Catholic Cathedral and an Anglican Cathedral are yeah. at either end of one road in the city centre, Hope Street. And obviously it's got, you know, a, a, a huge uh, black community, but largely concentrated in one part of the city for many years. And certainly when John arrived in Liverpool, most of the black community would have lived in the, in the south of the city, in, in the toxic area of the city. Oh, um, that's why there were the riots then. So, well, yeah, so, so the riots were a response to, a response primarily to poverty and unemployment, but also police stop and search laws which the black community felt were uh, unjustly and concentrated in their community so they were a perception that they were being harassed by the police but a lot of white youths rioted also because unemployment affected all parts of of the city of Liverpool but that kind of segregation of the black community from the white community in Liverpool was a was a feature and it's starting to change it's changed a lot 
what was was certainly a feature when I was growing up. I grew up in the Norris Green area of Liverpool, which interestingly, Howard Gale lived in Norris Green. Um, but this was an overwhelmingly white neighbourhood, a white housing estate. I think there were probably one or two black families that I knew. But but that was it. On a housing estate, literally thousands of houses. And so that, that was kind of Liverpool in the 80s when John Barnes arrived. Um, Did- did Brookside have any black characters? Uh, I wasn't a huge fan of Brookside, to be honest. I think it probably did, but I don't know for sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do some guess. research. Um, <laughs> this, <laughs> I'll, I'll do some research on that. Uh, Stanley Park yeah, story, yeah. Life, Love and the Merseyside Derby, or as it will be termed this season, Rafa Benitez, We Know Where You Live. Uh, Everton, Liverpool, <laughs> November Except 3rd. We don't know where you live. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's around there. It's kind of in that post. No, it yeah. isn't. November thirtieth at Goodison, and then nearer like match day thirty-five, Liverpool Everton at Anfield. I thought it was a great appointment. He lives in the city, doesn't have to move house, even though he is a nerd who works at the workplace all the time. This is one of the best managers of the century. What reaction will Liverpool fans have in the cop? Will they clap and then boo? Will they clap and sing? Will they claim him as one of their own? I think there'll be a little bit of mischief. I think if, if Everton are losing, if, if Liverpool are winning the winning the game, I think we'll hear chants of Rafa Benitez. I'm not sure if they'll chant his name before the kickoff, but he'll get a warm welcome. He's 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 loved um, by match going Reds. Absolutely loved and adored, and certainly by me. You know, um, his time at Liverpool, you know, coincided with some of the some of the best nights. At Anfield, I've ever witnessed, you know, that Chelsea semi-final, um, the Olympiacos game, and then obviously Istanbul, uh, the Gerard FA Cup final. He was also he also lost the League Cup, didn't he, to Chelsea? So he took us took us to the League Cup final as well. I absolutely love Rafa. Always will. Uh, do not begrudge him his move to Everton. It makes absolute sense for him. I do feel it's a strange one from an Everton perspective. I think it was a brave move by the board. Because the big fear has to be for him that he won't get an awful lot of time. I mean, a half time at Goodison at the weekend uh, when they were losing yes. um, to Southampton, uh, you know, they were booed off the pitch. <sighs> if they'd have lost that game, you can imagine the pressure would have been enormous. Um, uh, so I think if Rafa has a run of you know poor results, then the pressure will it won't take long for the pressure to build. Uh, but that's a mistake by Everton fans, in my opinion, because what they've got there, as you say, is a, a really top quality manager who who I think, you know, it's it's unrealistic to think Everton could win the league. Could they break into the top four? Well, it's not impossible, but with the resources they've got at the moment, probably unlikely. But he could certainly win them a trophy. He could certainly win them an FA Cup or a League Cup. Mm-hmm. And that's what they've craved. They haven't won a trophy since 1995. He's a man who could do that for them. No question in my mind at all. I think they need to give him time. And this idea that he, well, he used to manage Liverpool and he once called us a small club. You know, it's time to grow up, I think. Um, you know, you, who, else are, who else are Everton going to attract in their current state? Um, Eddie Howe. I think they've got to... Well, yeah, and I mean, no disrespect to Eddie Howe, but Everton fans believe, and I know a lot of them, they believe they're still a big club. I think they're a historic club. I think they're a great club with a great history. And... Researching the books I've uh, I've written, uh, I'm aware of their, their history. It's a fantastic history. They're a great club. Uh, I'm not sure you could call them a big club now, but they believe they're a big club and they believe they should be attracting the top managers. And they, 
to be fair to the board, they brought in Ancelotti. That didn't work out. And now they've gone to Benitez. Two top quality managers. Uh, I think they need to give them time. Really do. Well, fingers crossed. Uh, time at the elite level doesn't really exist unless you are Jurgen no. Klopp, who will be able to walk away whenever he wants because Mines, he did it at Mines, he did it at Dortmund, now he's doing it at Liverpool. Is it, and I, I've asked Liverpool fans this before, the, the fact that he gets the best out of a team. The, who is the superstar of Liverpool's team? They're either 11 superstars or none. And that team ethos has been written about in your books, uh, We Conquered All of Europe, and Champions Under Lockdown. Uh, you subtitled that, Jürgen and the Holy Grail. Well, it was a Holy Grail, and Brendan Rodgers was so close to sipping from it. Um, yeah. But Jürgen has managed to get the best players in the best position and get the best out of them. Who is the most underrated member of the Jürgen Klopp 11? Joel Matip. Uh, admittedly has had a terrible time with injuries but his quality is immense he had an absolutely fantastic game against Norwich James Milner what he does I mean I, I read a stat that he'd, he'd um, outrun every other player on the pitch on Saturday uh, at the age of 35 wow that, that's incredible um, you know, give, apparently gives absolutely everything in training he's a voice vocal leader in the changing room goes and watches the young kids play, um, nurtures them, mentors them, has absolutely bought into the mentality of the club and is is a real cog in Jürgen's machine, I think. Even if he's not playing, he's influencing. But I'd have to say, over the years, and it is starting to tr- change and people are starting to see his value, Jordan Henderson has to be the most underrated player at Liverpool throughout his 10 years at the club, even up until the season when we, we went toe-to-toe with City and just missed out on the title but won the European Cup. There were fans in the cup around me who would berate Jordan Henderson during a game, didn't see his value, didn't see his quality, didn't think he was world-class. And I have to say, they've all changed their tune. Some of them, to their credit, have, have, have held their hands up and said they were wrong. Uh, but you don't hear many fans uh, having a go at Jordan Henderson during a game when he's when he's playing now, um, or you know talking about him online. I, you know he he has he has emerged, I think, as as one of Liverpool's. You know he's not the greatest Liverpool captain, but certainly one of Liverpool's greatest captains. I think he'll be viewed in that way in the future. But I don't think he gets the recognition mm-hmm. uh, outside of the club. Honorary Scouser, and he's come a long way from being a player who Man U turned down because he didn't, Ferguson didn't like the way he ran. Well, Henderson, Absolutely, as a yeah. as a footballer, as a human being, as a totemic captain of Liverpool, because he's stepping into some enormous shoes um, as Liverpool captain. But yeah, good on Hendo. Uh, and well, uh, yeah, I mean, followed Stephen Gerrard. You know, how can you follow Stephen Gerrard? And yeah, he's done that. You know, he's won. He's won the biggest prizes in club football. I wonder, um, is he, if he's doing his badges, I wonder if he'll be on the coaching staff when Gerard and Gary Mack are brought back to Liverpool whenever Klopp should walk away, whether that's 23, 24, whenever. I mean, it, you wouldn't bet against that, would you? He's certainly got a huge knowledge of the game. He's certainly a very vocal leader on the pitch and off the pitch. You would also put James Milner in that category, wouldn't you? You know, you would think that he's probably meant for coaching and management. But then I thought that about Jamie Carragher, to be honest, and I was actually surprised when he decided not to go go in that direction. 
uh, understand why he hasn't gone in that direction. I was surprised. I thought Jamie Carragher would. And I think it's it's difficult to tell, isn't it? My, I would not have thought that Gerard would have gone into management. Uh, Gerard's a great, great leader by example on the pitch, but not the most vocal on the pitch. Very quiet off it as well, you know. So, so it's been a bit of a surprise to me that Gerard went that way and, and has, has done a fantastic job at Rangers, as we said. I wonder if it's um, Gary Mack doing the yelling. Maybe, quite likely. Yeah. yeah, and we, yeah, we wish Rangers well this season. 